Thank you for downloading this podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. All right, well, I know I typically drop an episode on a Friday, but uh, it was a busy, busy day at work, so here we are on a Saturday, and we're going to get back into Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry with Chapter 46, The Roman Colleges of Artificers. It will be evident, from what has already been said, that the plan upon which it is intended to write the history of Freemasonry for the present work will shut out entirely any search for the origin of the institution among the purely religious associations of antiquity, whether they be of Jewish or of Gentile character. For reasons given, we can reject as unsound the hypotheses tracing the foundation and the rise of the order to the patriarchal religion, the ancient mysteries, the workmen at the Temple of Solomon, the Druids, the Essenes, or the Pythagoreans. If we view the speculative Freemasonry of the present day as the outgrowth of the operative system prevailing in the Middle Ages, we must look for the remote origin of the former in the same place where we shall find that of the latter. Now the medieval operative craftsmen workers in stone, known as the Steinmeizen of Germany, the Talour de Pierre of France, and the Freemasons of England, were assembled and worked together under the form and regulations of a guild. But as all institutions in their gradual growth are apt to preserve some of the most important features of their original construction, notwithstanding all the changes and influence of surrounding circumstances to which they are subject in the course of time, we may very fairly come to the conclusion that whatever was the original body from which the Freemasonry of the Middle Ages derived its existence, or of which it was continuation, that prototype must have had some of the forms of a guild. It is true that when the operative Freemasons organized themselves into an association at some time between the 10th and the 17th centuries, which period is not at this time and in this place to be accurately determined, they may, as an original body, have assumed a form independent of all previous influences. But we know that such is not the fact. The Freemasons of that period were the successors of other bodies, and that they only developed and improved the principles of art that had already been long in existence. Then the first body of men, the association, the sodality, of which they were the outgrowth, must have had some features in its form and character that were imitated by the body of Freemasons who succeeded them, who pursued the same objects and only developed and improved the same principles. Now what were the features that must distinguish and identify the original, the exemplar, mold, or pattern of which the more modern Freemasonry was an outgrowth? We are led to answer to this question that those features to which we must look for an identification of the original body are at least two in number. First, the original body must have had the form and character of a sodality, a fraternity, or what in more modern times would be called a guild. Secondly, that this sodality, fraternity, or guild must have comprised members who were engaged in the practice of the art of building. The absence of either of these two features will make a fatal break in the process of identification, by which alone we are enabled to trace a connection between the original and the copy. We can easily find in the records of ancient history numerous instances of sodalities or confraternities, but as they had no reference to the art of building, it is clear that not one of them could have been the exemplar or source of medieval Freemasonry. 
the members of those religious associations of antiquity, which were called the mysteries, and to which speculative Freemasonry is thought, not altogether incorrectly, to bear a great likeness, were undoubtedly united in a sodality or fraternity. They had admitted into their association none but those who had been duly chosen, and reserved to themselves the power of rejecting those whom they did not deem worthy of a part in their rights. They had ceremonies of initiation, they adopted secret methods of recognition, and in many other ways secured the solitary position of an exclusive society. They were in every respect a fraternity, and their organization bore a very striking resemblance to that of the modern Freemasons. Hence it is that some writers have professed to find in these religious mysteries of the ancient pagans an origin to which they might properly trace the Masonic institution. But the theory is plainly unsound, because these religious associations had no connection with the architecture or the art of building. Freemasonry, which was always been either an operative art or been closely connected with it, could not by any possible contingency have taken its start from what was a wholly religious association. The Society of Dionysiac Artificers, who flourished in Asia Minor, did indeed unite with the observance of the mysteries of Dionysus, the practice of architecture. Therefore, the compiler of Lori's history of masonry undertook to trace the origin of our modern system to the connection of the pagan Dionysiacs with the Jewish builders at the construction of King Solomon's temple. There would be a great deal of force in this theory if it could be proved that the Dionysiacs as architects were of the same period with Hiram of Tyre and Solomon of Israel. But unfortunately, the authentic records of the order of events prove that there were only known as builders of temples, palaces, and theaters about 700 years after the era of the building of the Temple of Jerusalem. So too of the Essenes, we may say that the doctrine cannot be sustained which credits to them the continuation and preservation of the Freemasonry of the temple builders, and which assigns to them the origin of the modern speculative system leaving out the question the fact that it is impossible to account for the lapse of time which occurred between the construction of the temple and the first appearance of the Essenes about the era of the Maccabees, we meet with the very serious objection that the Essenian sect was wholly unconnected with architecture. Thus, too, of all the other schemes of tracing Freemasonry to the Druids, the Pythagoreans, or the Rosicrucians, we always have the obstacle in our way that all of these were associations not devoted to nor pursuing the art of building. We cannot but agree that it is impossible to trace the origin of a fraternity of working Freemasons, all of whose ideas, principles, pursuits, usages, and customs plainly and exclusively connected them with the cultivation of architecture and the art of building, not theoretically, but practically, to any other and older sodality which knew nothing of architecture and whose members never were engaged in the erection of buildings. But if we should discover in long past time a sodality whose members were builders and who were bound together for the purpose of pursuing their professional labors in a society which partook of the main features of a modern guild, we should be encouraged to make the inquiry whether such a sodality may not have given birth and suggested form to the medieval associations of operative Freemasons, from whom afterwards sprang in direct succession the speculative Freemasons of the 18th century. Just such a sodality will be found in the Roman colleges of artificers, the Collegia Fabrorum, which are said to have been instituted by Numa, the successor of Romulus, and therefore the second king of Rome. That the establishment of these colleges of workmen of various crafts was one of the numerous reforms instituted by Numa among his subjects is a fact that has not been denied by his historians. 
evidence of the existence of these colleges in the later days of the empire and of their spreading from Rome into various provinces is attested by many inscriptions in votive tablets, memorials erected to fulfill some vow, and other monuments that remain to this present day. The important relation which it is supposed that the Roman colleges bore to medieval stonemasonry makes it proper for us that something more than a mere glance should be given at the history of their origin and progress as well as at their character and design. Of Numa himself a few words may be said. He was undoubtedly one of those great reformers who, like Confucius, Moses, Buddha, and Zoroaster, sprung up at various times in the world's history and changed the character and the religion of the people among whom they lived and placed them on the first steps of the march of civilization. That such was the career of Numa is testified by the fact that he has so changed the military disorder of the loosely held together masses that had been left by Romulus into the orderly arrangements of a well-regulated municipality, that as Livy says, that which the neighboring nations had hitherto called a camp, now they began to name with respect the city. Numa, who was a native of Cures, a large city of the Sabines, was on account of his nationality selected through the influence of the Sabine population of Rome to succeed Romulus, and was called to the throne, according to the generally received record of events, 686 years before the Christian era. Having borne in his private life the character of a wise and just man, with no distinction as a warrior, he favored when he assumed the reins of government all the virtues of peace. He found the Romans a gross and almost barbarous people. He refined their manners, purified their religion, built temples, started festivals, and established a regular order of priesthood. As Plutarch says, the most admirable of all his institutions was his distribution of the citizens according to their various arts and trades. Before he came to the throne, the various craftsmen had been confusedly mixed up with the divisions of the Roman and Sabine population, had no laws or regulations to maintain their rights, or to secure their skill from the rivalry of inexperienced workers and tradesmen. Numa divided the several trades into distinct and independent companies, which were known as collegia or colleges. Plutarch names but eight of these colleges, namely musicians, goldsmiths, masons, dyers, shoemakers, tanners, braziers, and potters. But he adds that the other artificers were also divided into companies. Thus we can find that the exact number of colleges instituted by Numa cannot be learned from the authority of Plutarch. If we suppose that the other artificers alluded to by him included all the remaining crafts, which were united into another college, which was afterward developed into new societies, the whole number, which according to Plutarch were originally instituted by Numa, would amount to nine. Besides the collegia, and we include of course such as those of the augurs and priests which were specially established by legal authority, there were many others formed by the voluntary association of individuals. On this account, the number of the colleges of handicraftsmen became in the later days of the Republic, and especially of the Empire, greatly increased. There were among the Greeks sodalities or fraternities which they called etairi... I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. It's E-T-A-I-R-E-I-A-I. They were established by Solon, and Gaius thinks that the Roman colleges borrowed some of their rules from them. But this could not have been the case in reference to any regulations established by Numa, since Solon lived about a century after him. The Greek Etarii were, however, not confined to craftsmen. According to the law of Solon, cited by Gaius, the Etarii were brethren assembled for sacrifices or sailors or people who lived together and used the same tomb for burial, or who were companions of the same society, or who inhabiting the same place were united in the pursuit of any business which last division might be supposed to refer to workmen of the same craft. 
All of these were permitted to make regulations for their own government, provided they were not forbidden by the laws of the state. Among the Romans, a college generally signified any association which, being permitted by the state and recognized as an independent association, devoted itself to some determined object. Its recognition by the state gave to the college the character of a legal person, such as is now called a corporation. If we examine the laws made for the establishment and the government of the colleges, we shall be impressed with their similarity to those which have always existed among the Masonic lodges, both operative and speculative. The identity of regulations are amply sufficient to warrant us in believing that the regulations of the one were derived from, or at least had been suggested by the other. The laws and usages by which the workmen at the Temple of King Solomon were distributed into classes and regulated, which have been given by Masonic historians, and by none more extensively than by Dr. Oliver, are all guesses and doubtful. But those that describe the government of the Roman colleges or guilds of craftsmen have been recorded by various historians, and especially in the different codes of the Roman law, and have, therefore, all the character and value of authenticity. Whatever conclusions we may think proper to draw in connecting these colleges with the more modern guild, Masonic guilds must of course be judged according to their local weight. But the facts on which these conclusions are based are patent and have authentic record. It was required by the Roman law that a college should not consist of less than three members. It is hardly necessary to remind the reader that a lodge cannot be composed of less than three Freemasons. As in Freemasonry, there are regular lodges which have been established by competent authority and clandestine lodges which have been organized without such authority and whose members are subject to the severest Masonic penalties. So there were legal colleges, Collegia Licita, which were formed by authority of the government, and illegal colleges, Collegia Illicita, which assembled under no color of law and which were strictly forbidden. Illicit colleges, says Ulpian, are forbidden under the same penalties as are adjudged to men violating public places or temples. And Marcion says that they must be dissolved by virtue of the decrees of the Senate, but their members, when they separate, are permitted to divide the common property. According to the Justinian Code, no college of any kind was permitted to assemble unless by an act of the Senate or a decree of the Emperor. Each college was permitted to make its own internal regulations, provided that they were not contrary to the laws of the state. The regulations were proposed by the officers and, after due study, adopted or rejected by a vote of the members in which a majority ruled. The members of a college, or sodalis, says Gaius, were permitted to make their own regulations if they did not oppose the public law, and he shows that the same privilege was granted by Solon to the Greek fraternities. The colleges had also the right of electing their officers and of receiving members by a vote of the body on their application. The applicants for admission were required to be free men, but the Justinian Code permitted slaves to be received into a college if it was done with the consent of the domini or masters, but not otherwise, under a penalty of 100 pieces of gold to be inflicted on the curatoris or wardens. As in the lodges of Freemasons in the Middle Ages, we find that noted persons not belonging to the craft were sometimes admitted. So a similar custom prevailed in the Roman colleges. To them, the law had granted the privilege of selecting from the most honorable of Roman families persons who were not connected with the craft as patrons and honorary members. That they exercised this privilege is evident from the inscriptions and some remaining lists of members. We have also the authority at this point on Pliny, who in his letters when he was governor of Bithynia with the emperor Trajan, shows indirectly that it was the usage of colleges of builders to admit non-professional persons into their guild. 
A fire having destroyed a great part of the city of Nicomedia, Pliny applied to the emperor for permission to found a college of workmen, Collegium Fabrorum, to consist of 150 men. Knowing that it was the custom in these colleges to admit persons who were not of the craft, he adds, I will take care that no one not a workman shall be received among them, and that they shall not abuse the privileges given to them by their establishment. Each college also had its arca, or common chest, in which the funds of the guild were kept. These funds were collected from the monthly contributions of the members, and were, of course, devoted to defraying the expenses of the college. At a later period, when these societies or sodalities had become objects of suspicion to the government, because of their sometimes engaging in political tricks, they were forbidden to assemble. But there is a decree of the Emperor Severus, cited by Marcianus, which, while it forbids the governors of provinces to permit collegia sodalita or fraternities, even of soldiers in the camps, yet allows the poorer soldiers to make a monthly contribution into a common chest, provided they did not meet more than once a month, lest under this pretext they should form an unlawful college. The permission thus given to make monthly contributions, what modern Freemasonry we should call monthly dues, was most probably taken from the custom long before practiced by the colleges of workmen. The members of the colleges were freed by Constantine from the performance of public duties, but this exemption appears to have applied to all craftsmen as well as to those who were united in corporations. The reason given was that they might have better opportunities of acquiring skill in their professions or trades and of teaching it to their children. Therefore, this freedom from public employments was reserved in the colleges to those members who really were craftsmen. The Code of Theodosius plainly said that this freedom should not be granted freely to all who have been received in the colleges, but only to craftsmen. Patrons and honorary members were not to be included in the exemption. The meeting of a college were held in a private, probably tiled, hall of or a curia, which was the name originally given to the Senate House, but afterward came to signify any building in which societies met for the transaction of business or for the performance of religious rites. Each of these corporations, says Smith, had its common hall, called curia, in which the citizens met for religious and other purposes. In the old inscriptions, we frequently meet with this word in connection with a college, as the Curia Saliorum, or the Hall of the College of the Priests of Mars, and Curia Dendaferorum, or the Hall of the College of Woodcutters. Krauss says that they sometimes met in private houses. He does not give his authority for this statement, but it was probably in cases where the college was too poor to afford the expense of owning or hiring a common hall or curia. Officers were elected by the members to preside or to perform other duties in the college. There seems to have been some variety, at different periods and under different circumstances, in the titles of these officers. The officer who presided was called the Magister or Master. It would seem that in some of the legionary colleges he was called the Profectus or Prefect. In the Justinian Code, he is styled the Curator. Corresponding in some sense to our Masonic Wardens were the Decurionis, whose number was not, however, confined to two. In a list of the officers and members of a college, which has been preserved and which is given by a muratori, there are seven decurionis. A decurio, denoted, as the word meant among the Romans, one who commanded or ruled over ten men. Hence, Dr. Krauss supposes that the members of a college were divided into sections of about ten, over each of which a decurio presided. It will be remembered that Sir Christopher Wren is quoted in the Parentalia while describing the regulations that prevailed among the traveling Freemasons of the Middle Ages, that the members lived in a camp of huts reared beside the building on which they were employed, that a surveyor or master presided over and directed the whole, and that every tenth man was called a warden and overlooked those who were under his charge. 
This is at least a curious coincidence. It may give some color, if not decided strength, to the theory of Krauss that the decurionis of each Roman college is presided over sections or groups of ten men each. Reference has been made to a list of officers of a college, which has been preserved by the Italian antiquary Muratori. Similar lists are found in the works of Gruder, who has made the best collection of ancient inscriptions. These lists, like those published at this day by the Masonic Lodges, were intended to preserve the names of the officers and members for the information of the government. The list published by Muratori shows the following names and titles of officers, which will give us a very good idea of the manner in which the internal government of a Roman college of artificers was regulated. In this list, first appears the names of 15 patrons, who, as has already been said, were not craftsmen. The last of these is called the Basilieris of the college. There is some difficulty in coming to an exact understanding of the meaning of this word. A basilium was a double seat, a seat capable of holding two, as Hesek has called it, a distinguished and splendid seat, remarkable for its size and quality. It might be compared to the oriental chair given up to use of the worshipful master in our modern lodges. It was, in short, a chair of state, capable of holding two persons, though it is evident from several specimens which were found at Pompeii and which were accompanied by a single footstool that it was the occupied only by one. These chairs were used in the theaters and other public places at Rome and in the provinces as seats of honor. The privilege of occupying a basilium was granted as an honor by a decree of senate or an edict of the emperor, and the person to whom the privilege was, was granted was called a basiliarius. The form of the seat was like that of a modern ottoman, but larger and higher, and there is also a stool or suppidenium of which the feet are rested. Krauss says that some of the colleges had several bacillieri among their members, and he thinks the word means the same thing as honorary member. But as the patrons were generally persons of wealth and distinction, selected by the college to defend and promote its interests, it is not likely that of the fifteen named in Muratori's list, only one should have been elected an honorary member. But as the privilege of a bacillieris was a dignity conferred as an honor on certain persons, it is more probably that of the fifteen, the last one only had arrived at this honor and that the record of it was made in the list, just as in the present day titles are added to the names of persons in catalogs. The next officers mentioned in this list are seven decurionis. Then follow the names of the following officers, an haruspex, a soothsayer and diviner, who may be considered as about the same as our modern chaplain, and whose duty it was to attend the sacrifices and conduct the religious services of the college, a medicus or physician, a scriba perpetus, or permanent secretary, and a scriba, or secretary. Against the names of two of the members is written the word immunis, or free from obligation, to show that for some reason, not explained, these members were relieved from the payment of the monthly dues. No title of magister or master appears in this list. The same occurs in an inscription on a marble plinth, or column base, which has been preserved by Gruder. It is dedicated on the front side by the College of Carpenters, Collegium Fabrorum Tigniriorum, to the Emperor M. Aurelius Antoninus. On the other side are 40 names, many of which have the title of honoratus, or honorary, affixed. The last six names have the title of scriba, or secretary, attached to each. Hence, Krauss thinks it probable that each decuria, or section of ten men, had its master, who was a decurio, its secretary, and its patron, and besides, its own property obtained from bequests or gifts. If this be true, a college would not appear to have been a single lodge, but rather a group of lodges. The division in the Middle Ages, described by Wren, wherein a building the workmen were divided into tens, each having its own warden, would precisely meet this ancient condition of the curiae. 
In the time of the empire, when the government began to suspect the radical tendencies of the craftsmen, care was taken to place officers over the colleges who might have a control of their arts. These officers were not the same at all times in these several places. Sometimes he was a procurator or superintendent, sometimes a propitiatus or overseer, and sometimes a prefectus or prefect. In fact, the legionary colleges, which went along with the legions and which were principally concerned in the making of weapons as armorers and smiths, had an officer over them who was called a prefectus fabrorum or prefect of the workmen. But originally the title of magister or master was applied to him who was over the decurionis and who controlled all the acts, the labors, and the hours of rest of the members of the college, as well as their sacrifices and other religious ceremonies. There is abundant evidence of this in the inscriptions. From them also we learn that the master was chosen annually and afterwards with all the other officers every five years. Sometimes he was elected for life, a custom observed at a long and later period by the French lodges, whose venerables or masters were chosen ad vitam for life periods. Thus we meet with such inscriptions as Magister Quinquinatis Collegium Fabrorum Tignoriorum and Magister Quinquinatis Collegium Auricum, that is, Quinquennial Master of the College of Carpenters and Quinquennial Master of the College of Goldsmiths. Sertorius also refers to certain peculiar powers of the Magister Collegium or Master of the College. There can be no doubt that this was a well-recognized title of the presiding officer of these sodalities. The patrons selected from the most wealthy and powerful families of Rome, and who were not craftsmen, seem to have exercised important influence. Chosen that they might protect the interest of the society, no regulation was enacted, no contracts were made, and no work undertaken without their consent. The kings, prelates, and nobles, so often recorded as grandmasters by Dr. Anderson in his history of early English Freemasonry, may very well be supposed to correspond in position and duties to these patrons of the Roman colleges. Dr. Krauss thus describes the internal organization of these colleges, and this is, quote, It was only the masters who could undertake any work. The members of the decurii, or sections, who corresponded to the fellow crafts of the present day worked under them. Under these, and under the masters, were the alumni, or pre apprentices, who were still being instructed in the schools, attached to the college, and whose names, as they were not yet members of the college, are not mentioned in any of the inscriptions. And, and that's ends that quote. That there was a distinction of rank among the members of a college is very evident from several of the inscriptions and from passages in the codes. Besides, it is in the nature of things that in every trade or craft there should be some well-skilled and experienced in the mystery who will take the highest place, others with less knowledge who must be subordinate to these, and finally scholars or apprentices who are only beginning to learn the principles of their art. As in the lodges of operative Freemasons in the Middle Ages, there were masters, journeymen, and apprentices. So must there have been in the colleges of Rome a similar division of rank. The passage in the Justinian Code already mentioned provides that slaves could be received in the colleges only with the consent of their masters. If received without this consent, the curator or master of the college was liable to a penalty of 100 pieces of gold. This would show that in the Roman colleges, the distinction of bond and free, so much insisted on the more Masonic system, was not recognized quite in the same way among the craftsmen of Rome. But it must be remembered that among the Romans, a condition of slavery did not always mean the chains of ignorance. Slaves were sometimes instructed in literature and the liberal arts, and many of them were employed in trade and in various handicrafts. It was these last who were to be conditionally admitted into the colleges of artificers. It is evident that with the practice of their craft, the members of the colleges connected the observance of certain religious rites. 
In the list from Muratori, hereto cited, it is seen that among the officers designated as a haruspex or sacrificer, this semi-religious character, first introduced in their establishment by the pious Numa, continued to prevail to the latest days of the empire. It was in the spirit of paganism which linked with the rites and ceremonies of sacrifice the transaction of all private as well as public business. Hence, every college had its patron god, called the genius, under whose divine protection it was placed. The curia, or hall of the college, was as a rule built in the near vicinity of the temple of this god, and meetings of the guild were sometimes held in the body of the temple. Sacrifices were offered to him, festival days were kept in his honor, and were often celebrated by public parades. Among the paintings discovered at Pompeii is one that represents a possession of the College of Carpenters. Krauss gives ample proof that the colleges of artificers made use of symbols taken from the tools and the customs of their craft. We need not be surprised at this, for the symbolic idea was, as we know, largely favored by the ancients. Their mythology, which was their religion, was made up out of a great system of symbolism. Sabianism, the revering of influences residing in the heavenly bodies, their first worship, was altogether symbolic, and out of their early adoration of the simple forces of nature, by degrees and with the advancement of civilization, was developed a series of gods, every one of which could be traced for his origin to the impersonation of a symbol. It would indeed be strange if, with such an education, the various craftsmen had failed to have impressed their trades with that same symbolic spirit which was put into all their religious rites and their public and private acts. But it is interesting to trace the architectural symbolism of the medieval builders to influences exerted upon them by the old builders of Rome, and which they in turn gave to their successors the speculative Freemasons of the 18th and perhaps the 17th century. This is one of the most important links in the chain that connects the Roman colleges with modern Freemasonry. Nothing of the kind can be shown by those who would trace the latter institution to a Jewish or patriarchal source. The Jews rejected as vainly superstitious the use of painting and sculpture in their worship, though we find among them a few symbols of the simplest kind. Symbolism was not treated by them as an intellectual science. Christian imagery and art, which succeeded the Jewish and the pagan, has been more indebted for its very symbolic character to the latter than to the former influences. It is the same with the symbolism that has always been cultivated in Freemasonry, both in its operative and in its speculative form. It has been indebted for its warmth and beauty rather to the Roman colleges than to the Jewish temple. The most important of these colleges in the present inquiry were the Collegia Fabrorum, a phrase which has generally been translated as College of Artificers. The word faber in the Latin language means generally one who works in any material, but the significance is limited by some adjoining word. Thus, faber tignarius meant a carpenter, faber ferrarius a blacksmith, faber aurorius a goldsmith, and so on. But it was very generally used to designate one who is employed in building, a stonecutter or mason. We meet in Gruder and elsewhere with many inscriptions in which the word can only bear this meaning. In the passage above cited from Pliny, we see that when he asks the imperial consent to establish a society of artisans to reconstruct the burned edifices of Nicomedia, for which purpose builders only could be of use, he calls the desired society a collegium fabrorum, which may be fairly explained to be a college or guild of masons. There were, of course, colleges of other trades, such as the Collegium Pistorum, or College of Bakers, the Collegium Sutorum, or College of Shoemakers, and of whom a votive tablet was found at Osma in Castile, and many others. But as Dalloway says, the Fabri were workmen employed in any kind of construction and subject to the laws of Numa Pompilius. 
To these Collegia Fabrorum, or Roman Guilds of Freemasons, or Builders, Dr. Krauss, whose opinion on this subject we adopt with some slight changes, has sought to trace the origin of the corporations of stonemasons in the Middle Ages and the more recent lodges of Freemasons. Concluding this survey of the character and internal organization of these Roman colleges, the pioneer bodies of the modern Masonic guilds, it will be proper to cite the language on this subject of the latest and most classical writers on the antiquities of Greece and Rome. The following brief description is taken from Gould and Comer's able work on the life of the Greeks and Romans. And now we have a very long quote. Mechanics guilds, Collegia Opipium, existed at an early period, their origin being traced back to King Numa, they were nine in number, viz. papers, carpenters, goldsmiths, dyers, leather workers, tanners, smiths, and potters, and other guild combining. At first, all the remaining handicrafts, which afterwards grew into new, separate societies. Amongst these later guilds, frequently mentioned in the inscriptions, we named the goldsmiths, bakers, purple dyers, pig dealers, sailors, ferrymen, physicians, etc. They had their separate inns or private halls, or curia, scola, their laws and rules of reception and expulsion of members, their collective and individual benefits, their regulations for mutual protection, and their widows' funds, not unlike the medieval guilds. There was, however, no compulsion to join a guild. In consequence, there was much competition from freedmen, foreign, particularly Greek workmen who settled in Rome, as also from the domestic slaves who supplied the wants of the large families, reasons enough to prevent the trades from acquiring much importance. They had, however, their time-honored customs, consisting of sacrifices and festive gatherings at their inns, on which occasion their banners or vexilla and emblems were carried about the streets in procession. A wall painting at Pompeii is most likely intended as an illustration of a carpenter's parade. A large wooden tray, or ferculum, surmounted by a decorative baldachin, is being carried on the shoulders of young workmen. On the tray stands a carpenter's bench in miniature, with two men at their work, the figure of Daedalus being seen in the foreground. And that ends the quote. Reading this brief description, the principal details of which have already been given in our preceding pages, the student can hardly fail to be struck with the far closer resemblance the usages of Freemasonry bear to those Roman colleges or guilds than they do to those of the Jewish workmen at the temple. As we learn them from the very perfect and unsatisfactory allusions contained in the Bible or in the Antiquities of Josephus, one can hardly fail to see that the birth of Freemasonry from the former is far more reasonable theory than any derivation from the latter. Though but indirectly and remotely connected with this subject, one fact may be mentioned that shows how much the spirit of the guild organization, itself the spirit of Freemasonry, had impressed itself upon the common life of the Romans. The benefit societies of the present day, which are said to be, and most probably are, but coarse imitations of the Masonic lodges, were not unknown to the ancient Romans. They had their burial clubs, called Collegia Tenuiorum, the literal meaning of which is guilds of the poor. They were, as their name really suggests, societies formed by the poorer classes, from whose funds, derived from annual contributions, the expenses of the burial of a member were defrayed and a certain sum was paid to the surviving family. We have shown that there existed among the Romans guild-like associations of craftsmen, presenting a very close resemblance in their customs and purposes to the guilds or corporations of stonemasons of the Middle Ages, who are admitted to have been the forerunners of the speculative Freemasons of the 18th century and of the present day. The further connection of these two institutions can be identified only by tracing the progress of the Roman colleges from their rise in the reign of Numa to their change in character at the time of the decline and fall of the empire and they're becoming a part of the architectural associations which sprang up in those parts of Europe which had once been Roman provinces. 
The inquiry into this difficult but interesting topic must be separately considered, and we shall proceed to examine it in a following chapter, the evidence of this case. All right. That one was a little difficult to get through with some of the Greek and Latin terms, but uh, that was chapter 46 of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry. So we'll come back next week or so with chapter 47, The Growth of the Roman Colleges. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.